Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Decouple Podcast, where we explore the science and technologies that can decouple human well-being from its ecological impacts, and the politics that can make decoupling possible. Welcome back to Decouple. Today, I'm joined by Zeke Hausfather who's a climate scientist and energy systems analyst, whose research focuses on observational temperature records, climate models, and mitigation technologies. Zeke spent 10 years working as a data scientist and entrepreneur in the clean tech sector, where he has, was the lead data scientist at ESSIS, the chief scientist at C3.ai, and the co-founder and chief scientist of Efficiency 2.0. He's also worked as a research scientist with Berkeley Earth, was the senior climate analyst at Project Drawdown, and the U.S. analyst for Carbon Brief. He holds a master's degree in environmental science from Yale um, and a Ph.D. In climate, science, in climate science from the University of California, Berkeley. Zeke, that was a mouthful. You got a lot of qualifications, man. Welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Thank you. It's, it's great to be on. So, Zeke, um, if you've heard other episodes, uh, you know, I like to ambush my guests with a little self-introduction. Um, you know, give us the human side. Uh, we got those bona fides out of the way. Um, I stumbled on them a little bit, but tell us a little bit about yourself um, and maybe what led you down your path towards becoming a climate scientist. Sure. It was kind of an unusual path. Um, you know, I was always interested in environmental issues um, and particularly as an undergrad, became really interested in climate. Uh, this was, you know, shortly after the Kyoto Protocol had come out and there was all the discussion around that. Um, was really into activism back in college, you know, drop banners off buildings, chain myself to people in corporate offices to get them to sign on to sustainable ability pledges, that sort of thing. Um, yeah. And uh, it was an interesting time because a lot of that actually worked. You know, this was during the Bush administration when there wasn't much going on at the federal level and uh, environmental groups realized that pressuring companies could actually create, you know, meaningful short-term change in a lot of cases. Right. Um, but eventually burnt myself out on activism, um, went back to grad school, um, met a, a fellow in an energy modeling class at, while I was at Yale, uh, who was about to graduate uh, from Yale Law School um, had, and had decided he didn't want to be a lawyer. Um, but he had done his undergraduate at Harvard and been classmates with Mark Zuckerberg and a bunch of these other people had gone on to start social media companies. Um, wow. And this was 2007, An Inconvenient Truth had just come out. And he had the brilliant idea to start his own social media company, but focused around climate and helping people reduce their climate impact. Uh, and he convinced me to join him and we co-founded a company uh, that was initially called Climate Culture. Uh, and it had uh, a sort of virtual 3D island that represented different parts of your carbon footprint and an avatar that could gain levels and unlock outfits as you commit to take actions <laughs> to reduce your footprint. And you can had a profile, could visit your friend's island, could play flash games to win carbon offsets from sponsors. It was very like 2007 gamification. Gamification, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, this an inconvenient truth had just come out. So everyone was focused on climate. And then the financial crisis hit. Um, and, you know, we realized we needed to actually figure out a way to make money. Um, and while we got like 50 or 60,000 people using this niche social network, uh, that wasn't really a, a viable long term option. Uh, and so we pivoted, uh, turned it into a company called Efficiency 2.0. Um, realized that all of these algorithms I had designed around carbon footprint calculation could be used to estimate home energy use characteristics uh, and sort of competed against O-Power in the behavior-based efficiency space for a while. Um, and so I ended up doing that and, and similar things further for about a decade. Uh, but during that time, I got more and more interested in sort of climate science. Uh, when I was living in Amsterdam uh, before grad school, I started reading this blog called Real Climate was put up by a bunch of, at the time, young, early career climate scientists like Gavin Schmidt or Michael Mann, 
Stefan Ramsdorf, uh, who are sort of some of the, uh, the more senior people in the field these days, um, and got into this whole weird world of climate science blogging, which sort of hit its peak, you know, around the, the late 2000s. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, a really pivotal moment for me, actually, was when I got into an argument uh, with uh, a big, a major climate skeptic, this guy named Anthony Watts, uh, who runs, I think, what is still probably the most trafficked climate skeptic blog. I'm not sure how many people still read blogs. Uh, <laughs> and it was around a somewhat esoteric issue on, on surface temperatures, essentially the number of, of stations available at the time to researchers, uh, you know, dropped precipitously from like 7,000 stations worldwide to 1,200 in 1992 in part because the World Meteorological Organization had done a big effort to collect all this old station data before 1992. And after that, set up a a network of 1,200 stations that automatically reported every month. Um, And no one had really gone and collected all the other data that had come out since then that was, you know, sitting in paper logbooks everywhere. Um, And so his whole thing was like, look, they're throwing out all the stations that are cooling and only keeping the ones that are warming. And I'm like, Mm. "Uh, that's quite a claim. And, you know, there's an easy way to prove that. Just look at to see if there's any difference in the rate of warming between the stations that stop in 1992 and those that don't. Yeah. And he was like, well, if that's so easy. Why don't you do it yourself? And I realized that, Hey, you know, all this sort of data science work I'm doing for my day job in the private sector, you know, I could easily look at a, a simple climate problem like that. And so I wrote some quick code to, you know, download all the global temperature data to calculate, you know, the trends at each station. And then also as part of that to like put them on a grid and calculate the global temperature. And it turned out I got a result that was pretty much the same as what NASA, NOAA, and all these other groups get. And I was like, okay, that's that's pretty cool. Um, and I was like, okay, what other interesting issues can I then use this bit of code I wrote to, to look at? And one of the big issues that was being debated on the, at the time was something called the urban heat island uh, effect. Right, right. Um, and that's essentially, the other thermal, thermal mass is, issue from living yeah, in the concrete jungle. Like oh, mo- most of our weather stations are, are located where people live, right? You know, right. There's, there's not gotcha. too many. Okay. Th- these days, they're more automated stations, but particularly back then, you know, there weren't too many. There were way out in the boonies where people trekked out every day to take measurements, right? Right. Um, and so there's a concern that, like, since we know that the urban heat island is real, the concrete jungle warms up the environment, and most of our stations are near where people live, at least over land, though obviously two-thirds of the Earth is ocean, and we have plenty of, plenty of measurements there. Uh, there was a real concern that we might be sort of overestimating the rate of warming by sort of conflating urbanization and its impact right. on the local environment with global warming. Um, and so I did a, a quick analysis on that uh, using some of the code I'd written, posted on a blog. Uh, some scientists at NOAA uh, came across it uh, and reached out to me saying, hey, you know, this is really interesting work. Would you be interested in co-authoring an academic paper uh, on this subject? I was like, okay, that sounds like fun. Uh, finally, it came out in 2013 in the Journal of Geophysical Research, Atmospheres, uh, and got a decent amount of attention. And I had a lot of fun with the whole process. And I was like, okay, this was a lot more fun than my day job. <laughs> right. Is there a way I can eventually make this into my day job? Uh, and so, you know, I ended up writing a bunch more papers, um, going to a bunch more conferences, doing a lot of sort of science communication stuff on the side as well, which sort of the blogging was uh, a big part of. Um, and eventually going back and getting my PhD uh, as a way to, you know, make my my passion into my career. Um, right. That's a, yeah. that's a really interesting blend of like your your work, I guess, like working for yourself, private sector work, should we call it, academia, your own interests. You've kind of melded that all together. It's uh, not what I was expecting. Maybe I thought maybe you're more of a stodgy academic who'd now gone into policy work, but <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like you've had a pretty varied uh very light no, I, so far. I, I've never had a, a traditional academic career per se. Yeah. Um, it was it was interesting 
going into the PhD program, having published like 10 papers, but none in a traditional academic format, um, right. a very different experience than most people. So now, now you're at the breakthrough and, and maybe we'll get into that a bit later, but I wanted to, for the listener's sake, dive a little bit into, uh, you know, what I wanted to cover with you today and the, the podcast, the motivation for, for doing the decouple podcast, um, I think for getting attracted to elements of eco-modernism was coming for me out of a, out of a climate concern. And I'd, I'd read a number of books, uh, Six Degrees by Mark Linus, The Sixth Extinction uh, by Elizabeth Colbert, you know, The Uninhabitable Earth. Um, a number of books that had, had got me um, pretty riled up about it. Um, and, uh, you know, as I've been doing the podcast, I've, I've been focusing a lot on nuclear energy, but a number of other topics, uh, political topics, um, philosophical topics related to environmentalism. But I really haven't touched much on the science of climate change beyond an early interview with Mark Linus. Um, and I mean, his book, I think, is really excellent. It's drawing on IPCC reports to paint a picture of what the world will look at at each sort of degree. Um, but he talks a bit less, I think, about, you know, probabilities that we're going to arrive at, at certain thresholds, at certain, uh, certain degrees of warming. And I think what I've, what I've been noticing, like I've had a, a few guests on, um, and I've, I've sort of been trying to think about the sort of climate concern spectrum and where people fall upon it. Um, and certainly I think it's easy to d define sort of the, the outliers on either side, the sort of the catastrophism of Extinction Rebellion, um, Derek Jensen, uh, Greta Thunberg, for instance, and, you know, the kind of old school denialism, um, maybe of, you know, George Bush era, maybe that's like Tucker Carlson. I'm not, I'm not actually sure exactly where he stands, but this kind of middle section is a bit more tricky. Um, certainly, I think um, a lot of folks that maybe used to be on that sort of denial side of things are, are now in, uh, well, climate change is real, but it's, it's not that big of an issue, especially if we choose the right discount rate, folks like Bjorn Lomborg, um, yeah, we have, we have a term for them. We call them uh, lukewarmists. Lukewarmists. There we go. Yeah. So I'm trying to like flesh out this language and sort of decide where I situate myself because certainly I, I started off in a very catastrophist camp. I'm, I think I'm still quite alarmed. I know alarm. All these terms are kind of pejorative. Um, but yeah, I mean, t tell me about where you sort of situate yourself on on this this spectrum if you're comfortable doing that. I've had a bunch of guests who just said no, they wouldn't, and uh, others <laughs> where I was like, use a pejorative term for yourself, and they said no, and then. Uh, and then I've given people like a scale of one to 10 to use. I'm not sure if it's useful language at all, but I mean, yeah. What are, what are your thoughts about yeah. So it's hard to define because you're conflating a bunch of different issues, right? You know, the, on one side, there's the question of how bad could climate be? And the other side, there's the question of how bad will climate be? Yeah. Um, the former in some ways is, you know, it depends on less uncertainties than the latter because the latter, you know, really depends on what we do about it. Right. Um, but on the side of how bad could climate be, um, I mean, it, it could be really, really bad, right? You know, if we burned all of the coal deposits on the earth, um, we would have pretty massive amounts of warming. And the more we learn about our planet, the more caution we want to have around, you know, pushing it too far out of the range that's characterized the last few million years. Um, you know, there certainly have been a lot of large climatic changes that have occurred in the Earth's more distant past um, that we don't always have great explanations for. Um, and a lot of work that has been done around, you know, potential longer term uh, shifts, particularly under very high concentrations of CO2. Um, you know, there's a, a paper by uh, Tapio Schneider and his group at Caltech, uh, I think two years ago now, 
um, where they looked at uh, very high resolution cloud resolving models. And they found that uh, about 1300 or so parts per million, uh, at least in their models, you suddenly had most of the stratocumulus cloud decks covering the Earth's oceans evaporate. Um, and you had about six degrees additional warming in the course of a few decades on top of, you know, what was already four or five degrees warming. Um, you know, obviously that's one model and it's, you know, a, a limited sort of column model. Um, and we don't know, you know, for sure any of these things, but, you know, I, I think the Earth's past and the magnitude of shifts we've seen there should make us very cautious. Um, and we also, I feel like we tend to get a little complacent when we talk about degrees of global warming, right? You know, mm -hmm. the last ice age was about five degrees colder centigrade than today. Right. You know, we're talking in a world where we really tried to emit all the fossil fuels we could. It's not out of the question we could get five degrees centigrade warming. Um, if not this century, certainly next century. And so, you know, if we wanted to make things bad, we could make things bad. Um, and while I'm hopeful that a more prosperous future will, you know, make humanity a lot more adaptable to those sort of changes, right. um, I'm also a little skeptical at how equitable that future is going to be given, you know, current political trends. and social yeah. trends. Um, and also, you know, humans aren't the only thing that matters, right? You know, we can adapt easily. The natural world can adapt a lot less easily. Um, mm -hmm. There's a lot of species that are climate constrained um, in terms of where they can live. And while humans can help species adapt a little bit, you know, we can genetically engineer plants to be more heat tolerant. We can, you know, relocate species by hand to get them into new climatic ranges that fit them. You know, there, there's limits to that, right? And so I'm worried about sort of a prosperous human future in a graveyard of nature. Um, and right. that's, that's not a world I want to end up in either. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm alarmed in a sense around the potential impacts of climate change, but I'm also cautiously optimistic in our ability to deal with the problem. Um, you know, one of the things I've published a lot on is future emission scenarios and sort of where the world is heading. Right. Uh, and a decade ago, you know, it seemed like a world of four degrees by 2100 was you know, a real worry, right? China was building a coal plant every three days. Um, global coal use had doubled in a decade. And the idea that the 21st century would be the century of coal um, was not a crazy idea. You know, mm -hmm. obviously there, there are people who push back on that are like, look, you know, there's a lot of other technologies that are out there. There's no reason to think that, you know, we're gonna be burning this dirty rock that's causing all these air pollution problems for the next century. Um, but at the same time, you know, energy transitions historically have happened very, very slowly. If you yes. look at and some of his work, yeah. for example. Um, and so, you know, we, we certainly couldn't rule out those sort of scenarios. You know, 10 years later, we're in a very different world. Uh, global coal use peaked back in 2013. It's now in structural decline, according to the latest IEA report. Um, you know, the, the price of solar and batteries has fallen tenfold in a decade. The price of wind has fallen threefold. Um, there's a lot of, you know, neat work being done on small and modular reactors that we'll see if they end up being cost competitive. But regardless, you know, the global energy future is very different now than it was a decade ago. Um, and now it seems like global emissions are, may have already peaked. And if they haven't already peaked, they're certainly entering a long plateau instead of continuing to increase. Um, and so a world of plateauing emissions, which seems to be the sort of current policy pathway we're on right now, mm -hmm. uh, is a world of about three degrees warming by the end of the century. Uh, and obviously, you know, continued warming after that, as long as emissions remain above net zero. So, so that, 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 I mean, the, the end of the century thing has always struck me as interesting. And I know there's some extended pathways that the IPCC has put together for a variety of their uh, RCP scenarios. But, you know, with things just kind of abruptly dropping off at 2100, I mean, my son will be 82, uh, God willing, in uh, in 2100. 
Um, but I mean, certainly trying to think in, in, you know, the long now terms of someone like Stuart Brandt, um, how do things look in 2200, 2300? How well is that understood? Um, will, you know, if we, if we manage to get to say even net zero emissions, which I think is uh, fanciful perhaps, um, is the climate anticipated to stabilize at that point? Um, or will there be a radiative forcing that will kind of continue these, uh, this temperature rise, you know, beyond that three degrees at 2100, let's say? Because for yeah, me, I think that's part part of the part of the concern that drives me more on that spectrum towards alarm or catastrophism is like, okay, well, yeah, I care about my kids, grandkids. Yeah, <laughs> posterity is a powerful force. Uh, yes, and you know, uh, I, I sympathize with you, right, or empathize, I should say. I have a, a two year old or three year old now, um, yeah. and so she is very much going to be alive in twenty one hundred. Uh, and so, even though you know, the world doesn't end in twenty one hundred, even though a lot of our models do. Um, and so we need to start looking at these longer periods. Um, that said, you know, once you get that far, it's it's really hard to conceptualize, you know, what energy will look like, what humanity will look like. You know, imagine someone a hundred years ago trying to think of what the you know today would be. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very different world. So so it's tough to look that far out, but I think it's useful. Um, as to your question about warming, you know, effectively warming stops once we get to net zero with some uncertainty. Um, there's been a lot of modeling around this, particularly in the last year or two, um, that finds that you know once you get all well, once you get CO2 emissions to zero, holding everything else constant, you end up with sort of plus or minus half a degree warming over the century after that. And the reason for that is you're essentially having two countervailing factors at play. Um, on one hand, once you get emissions all the way to zero, uh, the carbon sinks, uh, the atmosphere and the ocean keep sucking up some of our historical emissions. Um, and so atmospheric CO2 starts falling quickly at first and then eventually tailing off as the sinks in the atmosphere reach a new higher equilibrium and you end up having to have like very, very long-term processes to get rid of all the extra carbon we've added. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, you know, the oceans are out of equilibrium today. You know, about 90% of the heat that's being trapped by greenhouse gases is being absorbed by the oceans and they're heating up much more slowly in the atmosphere because of, you know, high thermal mass of water. Uh, and so that continues to happen over hundreds of years, quickly at first, and then more slowly as sort of the surface layer warms up to match the atmosphere and and the rest of the deep ocean is a very, very slow warming process. Right. Um, And it turns out that those two curves, you know, rapid ocean surface warming tailing off and rapid falling of CO2 tailing off effectively cancel each other. So the additional warming you'd get from the oceans continuing to heat up is canceled out by the cooling you get from CO2 falling in the atmosphere. And so you end up with flat temperatures once CO2 reaches zero. Um, now, the real world is a little bit more complicated than that uh, for two reasons. Um, one is CO2 is not the only greenhouse gas. You also have uh, all of these, you know, you have methane, which is a strong greenhouse gas responsible for about a quarter of the warming we've experienced today, but has a very short atmospheric lifetime. Um, so if you were to cut all greenhouse gases to zero, global temperatures would actually fall pretty quickly um, by maybe, you know, half a degree. Um, or at least a third to half a degree, uh, as all of the methane drops out of the atmosphere in the next two decades or so. Um, but there's another short-term climate forcing, or factor, I should say, uh, that has the opposite effect, which is sulfate aerosols. Yes, yeah. So the air pollution improves and we heat up, right? Because is that a, a exactly. effect? So, so all, these, all these sulfate aerosols reflecting coming sunlight contribute to what people call global dimming, uh, which is a, a strong cooling influence. Um, it's, it's solar geoengineering, right? Yeah, we're, we're, yeah, we are still geoengineering by burning coal. And yeah, um, 
And so as all of that falls out, you end up having a bunch of short-term warming. And it also turns out conveniently that our best estimate of the additional warming you'd get from getting rid of these cooling aerosols is roughly the same as the additional cooling you'd get from cutting all the methane in the atmosphere that humans have added. And so those two kind of cancel each other out too. So essentially, if you get zero CO2 holding everything else constant, you have pretty much flat warming going forward. And if you get zero all of greenhouse gases and aerosols, um, you have roughly flat, maybe slightly cooling by a a tenth or two of a degree, because there's big uncertainty in the actual forcing of aerosols uh, going forward. Um, but that's, you know, I think that's good news fundamentally, because it means mm-hmm. that we have a lot more agency of controlling the future climate of our planet than if we lived in a world where there was like half a degree warming in the pipeline that we were going to experience no matter what we did. And in ter- I mean, in terms of the, um, you know, the, the the positive feedback mechanisms that start to click in with, you know, potential methane clathrate releases uh, from, you know, permafrost and the, I guess the uh, Arctic seabed. Yeah. So that's the second caveat. There we go. Yeah. Give me with that. Give me some bad news. <laughs> uh, so the good news is you don't have to worry much about clathrates, in part because most undersea clathrate formations or hydrate formations are relatively stable. Uh, and even if they are destabilized, uh, the evidence we have is that most of the methane released is absorbed by the ocean on the way up to the atmosphere. So there's not actually much outgassing from the top of the ocean, um, you know, maybe if we had some very, very extreme uh, warming events, you could you could have large scale uh, methane lathate releases. What are the other what are the other positive feedback uh, loops to be concerned about? So one of the big ones is methane permafrost. Uh, and there it's a bit complicated, right? Because uh, it's mostly like m- the methane doesn't all melt at once. It's a very slow process, uh, sort of from the top down, some areas faster than others, like south facing slopes faster than north facing slopes, even in the same area. Right. Um, and so what you end up having is it's not so much a concern about methane from permafrost um, because it, it happens so gradually that, you know, most of the methane decomposes into CO2 over the time scales of, at which the, the feedback has a big effect. Uh, it's more the carbon that ultimately comes out of the permafrost that matters for the climate. Um, and there, you know, some of it is counterbalanced by more vegetation growing in permafrost regions as it warms, but certainly by no means all of it. Uh, and a lot of the, the amount of permafrost that melts is proportionate to the amount of warming. Permafrost isn't so much a tipping point. It's not like you suddenly pass a point and all the permafrost disappears or even is will eventually disappear. It's it's scales with the amount of warming you have. Like at two degrees you get this much, three degrees you get this degrees you get this much. Uh, but you know exponentially uh, the more warming you get the more permafrost melt you're going to have in the long run and the more permafrost carbon you're going to have in the atmosphere and so what that means is if we can stabilize warming at two degrees above pre-industrial you know we're not really going to have that much committed long-term permafrost uh, carbon release um, if we're at three degrees it's going to be a, a moderate amount you know maybe by 2100 equivalent to uh, three or four years of human emissions uh, but if we start getting much above that, you know, four degrees, five degrees, then we're committed to a, a lot of long-term permafrost uh, melt. And the methane has, a, a as you were saying, a, a short-term effect that's, uh, what is it? I've heard estimates like 24 to kind of 80 times more potent than CO2 in the atmosphere. It uh, depends on the time frame. While, while it's actually in the atmosphere, it's like 120-ish times more potent. But again, it starts leaving the atmosphere right. almost immediately, part, portions of it. And almost all of the, the methane is gone in a, about 12 years after it's been released. Um, let's, yeah, let's 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 step back a little bit just to, I meant to sort of define some terms recently. I found reading uh, Bill Gates' book, uh, How to Avert a Climate Catastrophe, was useful from the sense of getting a perspective of just some basic numeracy around how much humans are emitting. So from what I understand, mm-hmm. since uh, the Industrial Revolution, we've done a little over a trillion tons. 
And, uh, and we do about 50 gigatons a year of CO2 equivalent. So like, I think 35 of CO2 and then the rest is methane and other gases that have about 35 of CO2 from fossil fuels, about five of CO2 from land use changes. Okay. And then some other methane. So 50, yeah, 50 gigatons a year. I mean, but what's fascinating about that is that in 20 years, we will release the same amount of CO2 as we've historically released from the industrial revolution up until now. Like those, those are the kind of numbers that have have me kind of freaking out a little bit especially <laughs> you know i was talking with mark linus and we were talking about the end permian um, extinction event and i guess the basalt lava tubes that that released lots of co2 in the year over maybe tens of thousands of years um, and the the climate impacts that had is there any and it's very difficult obviously to compare um these geologic eras that are so separated you know land masses are different continental <laughs> tectonics have moved but um, you know, what do you think about that, that line of reasoning that these changes are, are so abrupt compared to the climate record and, and the degree of, uh, temperature swings that we're seeing, um, in the, in the geologic eras prior? Yeah. I mean, we don't have great high resolution data from the distant past, so it's hard to know precisely how much change we had in a century timescale. Right. Um, but from everything we can tell that the earth is warming much faster now than it has in almost any period in, in its past history. Right. Um, simply because most of the, the large scale warming events that previously happened happened over the course of tens, if not hundreds of thousands of years. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've seen, you know, 1.3 degrees C warming already just over the, a, a century. Um, and so, you know, that's a concern for a number of reasons. You know, one, as we talked about earlier, there's a real concerns around adaptive capacity in the natural world to that rate of change. You know, nature can adapt to big swings over long periods of time yeah. if it has time, right? Corals are incredibly sensitive to temperature, but there were corals alive in the Eocene. Um, they were just adapted to a much warmer climate than the one we have today. Um, and But it also, you know, creates challenges for human systems too. Um, you know, we can adapt much more easily to a longer time scale. Um, whether or not there's sort of big unforeseen feedbacks that will lead to much more warming than, you know, what we predict will happen. I'm a little more skeptical on that front. You know, modern Earth system models have a lot of these processes in them already. Um, and while there certainly is a risk of unknown unknowns, the further we sort of push climate away from its the Holocene, you know, period where it's been, uh, you know, I... I I'm hopeful that we'll avoid the levels of warming that would make those sort of things more concerning. Um, You know, for me, essentially, if we can keep warming below three degrees and and hopefully below two and a half degrees, I I think we're minimizing the odds of a lot of the potential big sort of tipping element, tipping point processes that could really enhance global temperatures dramatically in a short period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that said, there are plenty of other tipping points and tipping elements that are concerning at lower levels of warming. You know, certainly all the coral reefs disappear once you get much above 1.5 degrees global warming. Um, though some areas will be more sensitive than others. Uh, you're committing the world to a lot of long-term sea level rise at two degrees warming over the next few centuries, um, simply because, you know, as long as temperatures stay high, the sea or land ice gradually melts, you have more ice sheet movement, you have more sea level rise, but that doesn't necessarily increase global temperatures, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And for things like permafrost, you know, they're not so much tipping points as feedbacks. Um, The warmer it gets, the more permafrost melt you get. And so by limiting warming, you sort of limit the amount of melt you're gonna get. Um, And so, you know, for me, the tipping points are worrying on an ecosystem level uh, or like a regional climate level. Um, But in terms of global climate, I think if we can limit warming to, you know, below three degrees and certainly 
flow two and a half degrees, I'm not too worried about those. Um, but I that think, said, <laughs> yeah, I think something it, is the small risk of catastrophe is is always something you should keep in mind when hedging your bets. And right. you know, we have we also have the ability to, you know, overshoot and recover, right? You know, with, with negative emissions technologies or solo geoengineering or something else. Like if if we get to the point where we're like, oh shit, there was this really bad thing that now we all see coming that we no one really saw at two and a half degrees warming. We have some, you know, emergency arrows in our quiver to deal with that. You know, we could temporarily geoengineer until we can suck enough carbon out of the atmosphere to get down to below two degrees or whatever threshold we discover is associated with this unknown tipping point. Um, I don't. I hope we'll never be in that situation because you know the, the politics and geopolitics of that are messy. But uh, yeah, I mean, and that's that's something that I find very interesting because I, I find a lot of the lukewarmness they'll seize on a couple of elements, right? They might just talk in isolation about the challenge of sea level rise or of you know the Hadley zones increasing and maybe more drought stress on certain bread baskets, but they'll say, okay, but there'll be more tractors. There'll be more this, that, but when you, I just think it's very hard to fit in all of the variables, right. From like water shortages due to, to glaciers depleting and these big areas of the world with maybe the majority of the world's population dependent on glacial flows, um, ocean acidification, you know, those droughts and food stresses, um, you know, refugee flows, uh, increasing in kind of avocado politics, as we've talked to Nils Gilman about on the podcast, you know, Hurricane Maria apparently set Puerto Rico back by about 20 years in terms of its physical infrastructure. And this idea that we're going to be able to, um, you know, through, uh, and further development adapt well to climate change, I find slightly challenging from that perspective of kind of towing along this anchor behind us of, all of the various climate impacts, be it extreme weather events or these other shortages. And I'm, I'm reminded of, I've talked about this a, a number of times, but James Lovelock, uh, one of my favorite humans, um, has spoken about how, yes, human beings are very capable of, of innovation and, and using technology to, to match challenges. But when we, um, when we end up becoming dependent on them because we've destroyed an ecosystem life support service, it's kind of analogous to living on dialysis. You have to constantly maintain this machine. And, and that has some kind of a net drag on human capacity and societal capacity to continue adapting. So maybe I have a bit more of a pessimistic outlook than you in terms of, oh, we'll be able to geoengineer and then develop uh, carbon sequestering technology that can can draw down. And I, I, I do want to get to that as well with you, that specific topic of, of you know, a lot of these models um, from the IPCC depend upon getting to actual negative emissions. But just on that topic of the... Well, my, my point wasn't so much that we should plan on geoengineering. I, I, I don't think we should. I, I, my point was if, if there is an unknown unknown right. in these more modest warming scenarios, you know, it's a useful thing to have. What, what do you think that within the climate discourse in terms of like, again, as I was mentioning that, that laundry list of variables of which I'm, I probably only touched upon like 20 or 30% of the, the big impacts um, and stresses that climate change can pose to humanity, like that, you know, versus, you know, again, the, the, the lukewarmness being like, ah, this one or two problems, not a big deal, but how those all interact with each other. That's, that's not like, a, I, I think that's a, it's a really important point and a really tricky one. And a lot of, you know, the, what you suggest the lukewarmers are doing is also a big flaw of climate economics. Like any of these studies right. that are like the economic damage of climate change will be equal to 4% of GDP under four degrees warming. It's like necessarily very narrow in terms of the type of impacts it can quantify. Like a lot of the early economic assessments of climate change were almost entirely about like agriculture impacts. A lot yeah. of them didn't even have sea level rise impacts. They've gotten a little better at that, but you know, it's, it's a real challenge. Um, but I think, you know, from, from my perspective, the impacts are large enough 
particularly to the natural world, but also to the human world, that it, you know, well justifies aiming to limit warming below two degrees. Um, mm. And I think, you know, we've made a lot of technological progress that, that puts that on the table in a way it wasn't five or six years ago. Um, but what worries me personally is the remaining uncertainties, not in terms of long-term tipping points, but just in terms of how much warming we'll end up with in the near term, um, just based on what we know. Um, and, you know, by that, I mean, really two big uncertainties on top of our, our own emissions, which, which we have control over. Uh, the first of which is what we call climate sensitivity. So essentially how sensitive the climate is to our emissions of greenhouse gases. Um, and that involves the interplay of a lot of different things like water vapor feedbacks and albedo feedbacks and aerosol forcings and all these other things. But essentially, if we double the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, our best estimate now is that we'll end up with somewhere between, you know, about 2.1 and maybe 4.3 degrees warming. Um, and that's a pretty big range, right? You know, 2.1 would not be that bad if we double CO2 and, and hopefully we won't double CO2. Uh, 4.3 would be really bad. Um, the good news is that range is a lot narrower than it used to be. Uh, I was an author in this big review this past summer that specifically narrowed that range um, and, and sort of helped chop off some of these very long tails of the distribution. Like previously, we couldn't say we could rule out like five and a half or six degrees warming for doubling CO2. And, and now we're, you know, we can never fully rule out anything, but we're a lot more confident that those are unlikely right. uh, based on sort of the combination of multiple lines of evidence. But the other big uncertainty that gets a lot less press that's equally important is what we call carbon cycle feedbacks. And permafrost plays into that as, as part of the equation there, but there's also a lot of other carbon cycle feedbacks. So as the world warms, the ability of the land and the ocean to take up our extra emissions, because they're taking up, you know, about 60% of what we emit right now does not end up in the atmosphere. It, it ends up in these carbon sinks in the land and the ocean. Mm -hmm. But we know that those sinks are going to weaken as the world warms. Um, and exactly how much is a big question mark. And so you can end up with, you know, another couple hundred at the extreme parts per million CO2 if the carbon cycle feedbacks are on the high end of, of sort of the range within the models. Um, or you could have less CO2 if they end up in the low end than we currently predict. Um, and that's a big uncertainty that we need to, to resolve as well. And so the challenge is if you combine those uncertainties, while we can say that, you know, a current policy world is probably going to end up with three degrees warming, we can't rule out four degrees or even, you know, at the extremes, four and a half degrees warming right. uh, under a current policy world. Um, and that's what worries me, right? <laughs> it's that there's this big uncertainty. Yeah. To what degrees are the models improving with, you know, more data and more computing power? Like, is there a quantum leap in, in like you mentioned that we, you, you know, you'd been part of this paper where you're narrowing down the, uh, the, the potential temperature rises at, at a certain uh, level or parts per million in the atmosphere. It, are things improving? Is there a general sense of that? So certainly we're making a lot of progress on understanding these uncertainties. Um, the, the big models, the like supercomputer models that everyone focuses on don't always help on all those issues. In fact, they, they've kind of made things a little worse on the climate sensitivity side because um, the latest generation of models, the ones that are being featured in the upcoming IPCC sixth assessment report, you know, most of them are, are pretty in line with what the previous generation of models estimated. Um, but there's this subset, about 15% of them that are really, really sensitive to CO2, mm. you know, have like five degrees plus warming if we double CO2, right. um, which most people who actually work in the climate sense world don't think is very plausible. Uh, and certainly most of the models that show that much or that high sensitivity are not uh, very well in line with historical observations. 
um, you know, in terms of they predict more warming than the world has actually experienced to date, for example. So, so historically, um, like up until now, more has been predicted than has actually occurred. Is that correct? In in the subset of models that have very high sensitivity. Oh, gotcha. Overall, if you if you look at the average of all the models, what they predict is pretty much what's happened. Spot on with what's happened. But okay. the ones that are are really really sensitive that say that like if we double CO two, we'll get five degrees warming. They tend to show too much historical warming, particularly in the last thirty years or so. Okay. Because um, a lot of them have this weird thing where they have to sort of to match the high sensitivity, they also have high aerosol forcings. And so what that ends up with is a 20th century that has almost no warming, followed by this huge spike in warming in the last 30 years as global aerosol emissions start to decline and, and CO2 emissions skyrocket. Huh. In the real world, we haven't seen that, right? right. You know, certainly we've seen, you know, a, a rapid warming since the 1970s, but it's been pretty linear. It's not like suddenly shoots up in the last two decades. Right. Anyway. Um, so there's reason to think that some of the very high sensitivity models and the latest generation models are, are not reliable in, in that sense. You know, in, in other metrics, you know, in terms of matching historical rainfall patterns or whatever, they might be well improved over the previous generation. But for climate sensitivity, they're they're somewhat problematic. So we've been talking a little bit about how like emissions may be plateauing now. I know uh, Ted Nordhaus and Ken Caldera have a uh, long bet on that. <laughs> um, but what does that mean in terms of ongoing parts per million increases in the atmosphere if our emissions plateau? I mean, that's that's obviously a good start, um, but the, the challenge is to get down towards zero. Um, what what is a what does a plateauing of emissions look like in terms of um, you know where we're at? We're, we started at two eighty uh, pre industrial. We're four seventeen, four eighteen today. Yeah. Maybe. So uh, a world of flat emissions is a world where we continue to add about two to two and a half parts per million of CO two per year, per year to the okay. atmosphere. Gotcha. Um, and so you know that means we end up with uh, you know close to five twenty or five thirty maybe 550 by the, by 2100 in a, a world of plateaued emissions. Now, I don't think it's very likely that we'll just have flat emissions for the rest of the century. I, I think it'll plateau, you know, in, in a current, in a more pessimistic world where you don't, don't get all or, all or act together on climate change. You know, I still think it'll plateau for maybe three decades and then start declining just because I, I don't really see fossil fuels getting cheaper and I see clean energy getting a lot cheaper just due to market forces and innovation and you know the fact that so many people care about this issue even if there's not strong government policy mm -hmm. um, and are putting a lot of money behind it but that said a, a, a sort of world where we did a flat emissions for the rest of the century we we'd continue to add that much you know two-ish parts per million co2 to the atmosphere every year and we'd continue to have warming of about 0.2 c per decade so let's, um, let's talk a little bit about how um, many of the IPCC models um, call for um, actually getting to a negative emission scenario. How, how do they forecast that? Is that just taking advantage of natural sinks or is that with bioenergy, cap, carbon capture and storage or, or even um, like engineered mechanical carbon capture and sequestration? I mean, I had a, a show recently on, uh, on mechanical carbon capture and, and sequestration and it's, it's very interesting, but um, when you start looking at the, uh, the amount of infrastructure required and the energy required and the fact that it doesn't, you know, contrary to the use of fossil fuels, which brought a lot of wealth um, uh, to us, I mean, it's, it's a drag on us again to develop all the infrastructure to pull the stuff out of the atmosphere. It's the right thing to do for the climate, but it doesn't make people rich or societies more wealthy. Um, what's, what's your take on that? Is that sort of pie in the sky, um, the dependence of these models on um, negative emissions or... Do you have a more optimistic view of that? So when we talk about IPCC models, we really need to differentiate between two different types of models. Um, on one hand is the climate models, which folks, folks are more familiar with. Right. Those just take 
emissions, or actually specifically, they most usually they take concentrations in the yeah. atmosphere as an input and then figure out what happens to climate based on that. Those are the, RC- um, on the other side, the RCPs, right? The, the relative concentration uh, pathways or? The RCPs are the things that are used by climate models yes, okay. to run the climate models. The climate models themselves are like CMIP models, CMIP 3, CMIP 5, the new CMIP 6. Gotcha. Um, but what creates those RCPs or the new SSPs, which are being used for the latest generation models for the, the upcoming IPCC report, uh, are a thing called integrated as- assessment models or IAMs, um, which itself is a confusing term because it's used to, to describe two very different types of models. Um, you know, on one hand, like Nor- Bill Nordhaus's DICE model, which is a very famous climate economics model, is called an integrated assessment model. But that's not the type of thing that's used by the IPCC to create its emission scenarios. Um, rather, they're really better called energy system models. Um, they're essentially energy op- global energy optimization models uh, with their own assumptions around future technology prices and, and policy strengths and whatnot. Uh, and the way they're, they're usually run is they sort of run a baseline version of the model, which sort of says what happens if the world stays the way it is today um, in terms of policies um, or the way it was 10 years ago in some cases. Uh, and then various mitigation scenarios that say, okay, you know, if, if the world wants to limit warming to two degrees, this is the optimal mix of energy in different regions to get us there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so those models, uh, particularly for very ambitious mitigation scenarios like two degrees or one and a half degrees, uh, tend to be very bullish on negative emissions. And the reason for that is because they assume that it's very expensive to cut emissions in the near term. And they ex- assume that these sort of negative emission technologies will get a lot cheaper by the end of the century. And so therefore the optimal solution in this sort of model is to right. overshoot, you know, maybe get to 1.8 degrees uh, in the middle of the century and then suck an enormous amount of carbon out of the atmosphere to get down to 1.5 by the end in, in some of the 1.5 scenarios, for example. Um, and the technology that those models mostly rely on for that is something called BECS or bioenergy with carbon capture and storage. Uh, and the idea behind BECS is essentially you grow an energy crop, some energy dense fruit or switchgrass or whatever. Um, and you convert that into electricity by burning it. Uh, and then you capture the carbon that comes out of that process and you bury it underground. So you get carbon negative electricity, which the models love because they're like, sweet, Free. two birds with one stone. Yeah. Um, in the real world, you know, <laughs> bioenergy is a lot more challenging. Um, and the scale of bioenergy employed by these models, Bex specifically is, is staggering, right? Some of these models of two to three times the land area of India devoted to Bex by the end of the century. Globally. Um, so you're really talking about like planetary scale engineering here. Um, right. And so there's a couple problems with this approach. Uh, one is that it reflects the technological conservatism of a lot of these models. Um, so per, the models that are used by the IPCC um, tend to lag well behind what's happened in the real world, in part because you know the IPCC process is structured such that they need to those model runs to be done many years in advance of the IPCC report because it takes years for the supercomputer climate models to be run. Right. Um, and so a lot of the current models that are being used in the upcoming IPCC report have technology cost assumptions from like 2012 or 2013, right? right. Um, as an example, in all of the models used by the IPC, upcoming IPCC report, uh, they assume that solar prices in 2050 will be higher than they are today. Okay. We've already seen large enough declines in solar prices that it's, it's past what the models assumed would happen in the year 2050. Um, 
And so if you look at models that are more up to date, like the IEA World Energy Outlook, which is updated annually, um, or some of the models by folks like Shell or BP or, or whatever, you know, they tend to be much more bullish on renewables than the IPCC, the models used by the IPCC. Um, and therefore, they also tend to be much more bullish on near-term emission reductions uh, being cost-effective. And so you don't need as much negative emissions uh, in the more up-to-date models um, than you do in, in the models used by the IPCC. Um, so that's you know one big problem they have. Um, and you know the other is, in, in general, there's this assumption around low-cost negative emission technologies with, with not too many limitations in, in the distant future. Mm -hmm. um, and if that happens, it would be great. You know, I I'm, would jump you know, out and run down the streets waving my arms saying, we've created cheap negative emissions. We can solve climate change with no problem at all. Um, but betting on that <laughs> is problematic. And it ends up being a hell of a moral hazard, right? You're essentially following a pathway that's purposefully overshooting in hopes of some, you know, miracle technology swooping in and saving everyone at an unimaginable scale later in the century. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that there has rightly been a lot of criticism of those models and, and that those, the assumptions on very large scale negative emissions should be taken with a lot of skepticism. Um, at the same time, I'm a little worried there's been a tendency to sort of throw the baby out with the bathwater around negative emissions. Um, you know, even if they're not going to be counteracting half of all of our current emissions today, by the end of the century, they're still going to be playing an important role. And, and part of the reason is that there is this sort of long tail of hard to decarbonize parts of the economy, things like, you know, industrial heat, shipping, aviation, agriculture, uh, where we don't really have great solutions today. And we're probably not going to for the next, at least the next few decades. And so, you know, there is certainly a world where, you know, negative emissions aren't being used at a, a huge scale, but they are being used at a reasonably large scale to sort of counteract the, the sectors that we can't effectively decarbonize yet or fully decarbonize yet. Oh, it's, it's wild thinking about two, uh, two land surface areas the size of India being devoted to, uh, to bioenergy crops. I mean, I think the history with One of the models says 5X, I think. <laughs> that's wild. And I, I know the, I was interviewing your colleague, Sieber Wang, uh, on the Tsinghua climate models uh, that, that China or that this prominent Chinese think tank has put forward um, with their, their goals of hitting net zero by, by 2016. I think they were heavily reliant on uh, BEX as well. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, I, I yeah, Bex has the weird distinction of being one of the few technologies that was first invented in a model. <laughs> <laughs> wow, wow. I mean, there's this joke about like cutting down trees and dumping them in mine shafts as, as a way to uh, <laughs> to sequester carbon. But I guess making electricity to them is useful. But you know, the it's interesting, like looking at the um, some of the early uh, the early utility models for um, carbon capture at coal plants, for instance. And you need to burn about twenty to thirty percent more coal to run the scrubbers to sequester the the carbon, which right now is being used to actually just pump more oil out of an adjacent oil field. Yeah. So it's. Uh, I mean, coal with CCS is also uh, the other thing. The the integrated assessment models used by the IPCC love are. Uh, fossil fuels with CCS, particularly right. coal with CCS, yeah. um, which again, I think is a bit of a, a relic of them being, you know, using prices and technology assumptions that are almost a decade out of date now, right? Because right. coal with CCS is a really hard sell in a world where the economics of coal are already pretty dismal, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it's not like adding a CCS unit on top of coal makes the economics better. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, I'm, I'm pretty bearish myself on coal with CCS outside of maybe some industrial settings. Um, you know, I think gas with CCS has a much larger potential uh, as a technology, which is also something the the latest uh, IA, uh, the big report the IA put out with last week agrees on. Yeah. They're also much much more bullish on gas with CCS, um, in part because it you know 
can help fill the gaps between renewables better, um, but also because it, it can you know, help with industrial heat decarbonization a lot more effectively than coal can. So what's your, what's your take on, um, on the shale revolution in the States in particular? Um, it seems to have really given a, a second breath to the fossil fuel era. We were talking about peak oil um, not so long ago, and, and fracking has certainly opened up a new kind of fossil renaissance. Um, but you know, emissions in the States have declined quite rapidly as a result of the switch from coal to natural gas um, with the proviso of a, of a, what is it, a methane leak rate below 3%, um, which I think is being achieved. But I know there's controversy around that. I talked to Ted about this a while ago. Um, he was saying- Well, it, so when you're talking about methane leak rates, it, it gets complicated, right? 3% is the cutoff for a, an equivalence over a short period, like 20 years. Mm-hmm. If you look at the full century, you'd need like 10% or so leakage to, to have equivalence. Wow. Um, okay. Nine, 9%, I think. It, it depends a bit on what you're assuming for the efficiencies because new gas plants are a lot more efficient than existing coal plants or even new coal plants. Right. Um, anyway, uh, comparing methane and CO2 is complicated. I, I have a good paper on that. I wrote a couple of years back with Ken Caldera and some other folks that I'm happy to share. Um, right. But, but yeah, so the methane revolution or the shale revolution, I should say, is, is complicated from a climate standpoint. Uh, it's undeniable that shale gas has played a huge role in killing coal. Uh, and in fact, is the single biggest driver of, of declines in US CO2 emissions, uh, right. more than wind, solar, or anything else to date. Um, at the same time, it's led to a resurgence in US oil production. It's driven down the cost of oil globally, which you know leads people to make consumer decisions that are you know, around like buying big cars and things like that that are not ideal for the climate. Um, and it's also led to a lot of methane uh, releases. You know, our, our best estimate is that the leak rate of the whole natural gas system is somewhere around 2%, but that's still a lot of methane going into the atmosphere. Uh, and, you know, a lot of flaring of natural gas and, and releasing CO2 through that. Um, so, you know, I think on balance, it's probably been a good thing, but it's a good thing that needs to wind down quickly. Um, you know, I think shale oil is, is going to be a tough sell in a world of, of high electric vehicle uptake, just because it's one of the more expensive ways to produce oil compared to like Saudi Arabia or somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and then shale gas isn't going anywhere soon. Um, but, you know, we're going to have to see a world of declining gas use, but continued gas use for a while. So one one interesting thing is if you look at, there's been a whole host of models published recently looking at how you could decarbonize the US by 2050. Um, There's one by uh, Jesse Jenkins group at Princeton, the the Net Zero Americas project. There's one by uh, Jim Williams and colleagues that was published in uh, AGU Advances. Uh, There's one by Chris Clack and Vibrant Energy. Uh, And what they all tend to show is that, you know, renewables play the bulk of the role in the next two decades, at least. Um, after 2040, it, some of the models have a lot more nuclear, depending on their assumptions around future costs. Uh, but for the next two decades, it's primarily a renewables game. But the fact that the US has so much natural gas infrastructure, in fact, we, we have too much gas infrastructure in some ways. Uh, our, our typical gas plants, they operate at, at less than 50% capacity. Right. Um, you know, the gas, gas ends up being really effective at filling in the gaps between renewables um, yeah. because gas plants, most of the cost of operating a gas plant is burning the natural gas. You know, a, a modern natural gas combined cycle turbine that produces a gigawatt of power, so the equivalent of a, a medium-sized nuclear reactor, employs about 23 people yeah. compared to, you know, 140 people or so at a co- equivalently sized coal plant and about 700 people at a, a similarly sized yeah. nuclear plant. Um, and so if you have that coal plant or nuclear plant shut down for all but an hour of the day, 
you know, you're spending a lot of money paying people to do nothing. There's a lot of fixed costs around maintenance and things, whereas gas turbines are dirt simple from a technology perspective, mostly automated and have relatively little sort of uh, non-variable operational costs. And so being able to dial down that gas plant and leave it idle for, you know, 60, 70, 80, 90% of the time and only run it when the price of electricity is really high because the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining. And right. you know, you've had multiple days in a row of, of high demands where all your batteries are tapped out. You know, that that actually fits really well. And so what a lot of these energy system models end up showing is the amount of gas capacity in the US, the actual amount of gas plants, doesn't change much at all between today and 2050. But the capacity factor of those gas plants goes, goes yeah. down from about you know yeah. 50% today to about 5% by 2050. And by 2050, you know, you're, you're burning a blend of like 50% hydrogen, 50% natural gas um, in those plants. This is the, um, uh, in order. We, we did an episode on uh, pro wind gas, uh, vegan plus, which is a <laughs> Greenpeace energy division in, in Germany, which is mixing uh, electrolyzed hydrogen at a concentration of less than 1% into uh, <laughs> Russian gas and, and greenwashing it that way. It's it's interesting. Well, yeah, so, I think uh, so. One less than one percent isn't much, but eventually we uh, can get up to, to somewhere around fifty. They're, they're adding in. Uh, I think they've updated this year. Maybe maybe under pressure from this podcast, probably not. Um, but they've <laughs> they've added in. Uh, I think eight percent biogas now, but from vegan uh, sources uh, for the vegan blend, which is uh, you know for the uh, uh, ascertaining customer as an extra <laughs> you know European uh, cent or something. But <laughs> but uh, one one thing that's consistent across pretty much all the energy system models, be they these new state of the art grid integration models that are coming out in the U.S. or the like big coarse IPCC models, is is you have sort of a, a loading order of fossil fuels in in decarbonization scenarios. Coal falls off a cliff if we have any hope of of limiting warming to below two right. degrees. Um, oil peaks in the next decade or so and starts declining as more and more people buy electric vehicles. Um, and then gas is the last to decline. Um, you know, it, it might even increase globally through 2030, even into the 2040s, and, and then falls pretty quickly. Uh, sooner than that in 1.5 degree scenarios, a little later than that in, in the under two degree scenarios. But you essentially get rid of your coal first, your oil next, and your gas last. Right. Um, that doesn't mean that you don't do anything about gas in the meantime, right? You're, you're still reducing the amount of gas you're using by building more fuel-saving resources, be them uh, renewables or small right. modular reactors or other things that can sort of load follow and um, you know fill in the gaps effectively. Um, and in fact, one of the better arguments for clean firm generation like nuclear, like uh, geothermal, um, is it's really hard to get rid of gas in the system with just wind and solar and batteries. Yeah. Um, well, that, that's that's an interesting you have anecdote. Things from, like what happened yeah. in Texas, right, where you have a, a long period of extreme demand and low renewable generation. Yeah. Even if you had all the batteries in the world, they're going to run out after a few days, and, and you're going to be in trouble if you don't have some sort of, you know, on-demand generation that can fill in the gaps. I mean, certainly, yeah, the, the fuel-saving argument I think is quite strong. But I mean, if you look at Germany with the Energiewende, they've still got that 90 gigawatts worth of firm capacity on the grid. They've just built 110 gigawatts of wind and solar capacity. It doesn't seem like it's a way to fully retire a fossil fleet. It's It's got to be there in the background, particularly if like Germany, you care about, you know, your, your industrial sector still being viable and not facing blackouts. And I think there was a $200 billion loss in, after the Texas blackouts with a number of yeah. industries. I mean, it, it's tough. Like yeah. you can create a model where you can solve it with just renewables. Um, right. It just ends up being a lot more expensive. And in fact, one of the things that a lot of these models tend to find is that once you get from like 80 to 90% of renewables to 100% renewables, your costs roughly double. 
Yeah. Um, so it's really an 80-20 problem, right? You can get 80% of the way there with renewables without much, if any, net additional costs. It's that last bit that becomes really hard, even assuming, you know, a super grid and dramatic declines in, in short-term battery storage and all these other complementary technologies that can help renewables. You know, even with all those, you still have this last 10% problem uh, mm-hmm. with clean, clean firm generation, you know, makes things a lot cheaper. I have this thesis I need to test a bit further, but... Um... You know, I think absent the fracking revolution, um, we were we were kind of heading into a bit of a nuclear renaissance. Um, obviously, Fukushima had a massive impact on that. But I, I think, you know, without like in a world where we are actually peaking with fossil and we were not going to have a, a dispatchable source to firm renewables, I think you would be heading in a much stronger direction towards nuclear. Because, again, if you, if you didn't have this this uh, burst of gas over the next 80 years from fracking, wind and solar would really not be viable particularly as we wait for the miraculous battery tech that's you know supposed to sort of salvage the intermittency and, and release us from gas eventually. But to be tested. I mean, when we talk about battery tech, we should really differentiate, right? Like uh, daily storage is becoming more and more mature. And that, and that yeah. plays a huge role, right? In, in getting solar power from the daytime to the nighttime, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the real challenge is around seasonal storage yeah, or multi-day, um, yeah. you know here in california our, our solar panels produce half as much electricity in the winter as in the summer right um and so you know you can either build 100 percent more solar than you need and throw half of it out in half of the year right um or you know figure out some other clean firm generation to fill in those gaps um but yeah i i think there there is a case to be made there at the same time like i don't want to throw all of the challenges of the nuclear industry on gas gas has certainly been the biggest driver of retirements of existing nuclear plants in the us um, which has been a real tragedy um but i think the challenge around building new nuclear plants at least in the west has been more around construction costs than gas competition per se though gas hasn't helped yeah Um, Like I'm, I'm not sure a world where we didn't have the fracking revolution, we would have really managed to to solve the like construction cost of our own challenges of things like the Vogel plant, mm-hmm. um, and you know places like China, South Korea, Japan, where there isn't cheap, plentiful natural gas, haven't had a nuclear renaissance during that period. Well, I mean, China's kicking ass now for sure. They're, they're China's kicking China. ass now, yeah, yeah, yeah of course, yeah. yeah. And they're going to be, you know, the, to the extent to which I, th- I think there is going to be a big renaissance in conventional nuclear reactors in the next two decades, it's going to be in China. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, um, just because they're good at building big things quickly. I've got an interesting show coming up looking at uh, nuclear in Africa, and uh, my guest is. Um, positing that it's more likely to be countries like China with the experience of uh, exporting the 300 megawatt reactor to Pakistan, like on budget and on time that will be filling that Mm -hmm. gap, you know, with the kind of state backed capacity, than, you know, a lot of these Western startups that just don't have the state backing to offer the the training and, you know, full spectrum of services to a country, you know, such as like new scale, for instance, that has an interesting reactor design, but you know, it's, it's, it's going to be a, it's going to be interesting show. I think yeah, I, I think uh, there's definitely a case to be made for that. Like, mm-hmm. uh, particularly for countries that want big reactors, um, you know, China is going to play an increasing role there in, in exporting that technology globally if they succeed in their current buildup. Yeah, absolutely. Zeke, this has been a you know really fascinating, far-ranging conversation. Uh, you, you answered a lot of my questions for sure. I mean, there's there's so much here to take away from. I was going to end with something corny about trying to imagine you know our, our kids in their 80s sitting on the porch together and. kind of what they see but i think this is just illustrative of there's there's so much uncertainty in these models um there's certainly the potential for some serious badness 
Um, you know, my former, my former guest, Mark Linus was saying with these non-trivial chances of heading into four five, six degree territories, um, you know, the degree to which you face a risk determines how much you're willing to spend on the insurance policy. Right. Um, mm-hmm. you know, the, the urgency seems there for me. I think I'm, my position kind of entering and leaving this conversation is, is, is pretty similar in terms of, um, feeling highly motivated to, to make that change. And again, I mean, the, the idea behind the podcast, and I think that the draws out of the eco-modernist tradition is that hopefully we can, uh, have our cake and eat it too, and see human flourishing without, um, you know, severe, uh, climate or environmental impacts. If we, if we make the right technological choices and the podcast pauses that we need the right politics to enable those, those choices. I didn't mean to end on such a little spiel <laughs> there. No worries. Um. <laughs> I mean, I, I just give a, a final note that, you know, I'm, I am increasingly optimistic. Um, you know, if, if we look at all of the pledges that countries have made today, and again, you know, pledging to do something 30, 40 years from now should be taken with a boulder of salt until it's reflected in near-term policies. Right, right. But if we add up all the pledges that countries have made, it, it ends up with us uh, at a best estimate of two degrees warming by 2100. Um, and that's a very different world than we had only a few years ago, mm-hmm. uh, both in terms of the, the magnitude of near-term pledges, but certainly in the magnitude of longer-term pledges. And so I think, you know, we're moving in the right direction. Every year, the new reports come out and they show or in lower future emissions trajectory and the sort of current policy or stated policy scenarios. Um, and, you know, we're just not doing it fast enough to, to get to where we want to go. Um, so I think we're, we're starting to make the worst case outcomes a lot less likely, um, but we still have a long way to go to get to the best case outcomes. Yeah, I mean, I think talk is talk is pretty cheap. I mean, Biden's talking about getting to zero carbon electricity by 2035, you know, while retiring probably five gigawatts of nuclear in the next year and a half, maybe. I mean, I, I share with you, I think I've become a bit more of an optimistic person, um, particularly since becoming more solutions focused than, than problems focused. And I mean, I, for one, seriously was considering not having kids and God, I'm ever glad I did. It's, you know, fatherhood's an absolutely amazing experience. Um, but yeah, I mean, very complex thing to look at. I think you were mentioning Václav Smil earlier in our talk, and I was talking with uh, Mark P. Mills a while ago, and he was saying, listen, like we've been through a number of energy transitions, but you know, we still burn wood. Like none of these fuels ever truly goes away. Um, and I do take with a boulder of salt, um, a lot of these, uh, stated commitments like Biden's or even the, the Singhua plan, uh, coming out of China, which, you know, that to me, I was like, wow, this is really optimistic. China's going to be, you know, the, the world's top emitter, the largest economy they'll signal to the rest of the world, sort of what to do next. Um, this is big and bold and beautiful, but you know, whether it's a kind of geopolitics and trying to sort of seize that moral leadership on the world stage by making these pledges talk is cheap, but. I guess, I guess yeah. we'll see. I guess we'll see. We'll see. I mean, for, for me, you know, we were muddling toward a three degree world. We have commitments, long-term commitments to get to a two degree world. If we have the difference and end up at two and a half degrees, that's not a world I want to live in, but it's certainly a lot better than one we could end up with. Fair, fair. All right, Zeke, thanks for taking the time, man. Uh, you have a, a pretty stellar um, depth and breadth of knowledge on this topic. It's, uh, it's been a, a pleasure having you on to demystify a little bit for us. Yep, yeah, it's been great. All right. All the best, man. Take care. If you enjoyed the podcast, please make sure to subscribe, like, and review us on your podcast platform of choice. Until next time, guys.